Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from where they were over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all of the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you will use this time to open our minds and open our hearts to hear the words that you will speak through Kevin today, Lord. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. How are we doing? Genesis chapter 11. Um, as, as some of you guys know that have been here for a while, um, for the last couple of weeks anyway, um, we've been going through a, a series through the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a children's Bible that I read to my, to my kids. And one of the reasons we've been doing that is uh, holistically, oftentimes we view the Bible in like a fragmented way, in the sense of there's different stories throughout, specifically the Old Testament, where we'll look at them and we'll say, oh, you know, this is a story of Daniel and the lion's den, and isn't Daniel great, and he's amazing. And what we miss is the bigger picture behind that story, which is God sovereignly protecting Daniel in the midst of persecution and being excommunicated from the Jewish people. And so the, 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 the hero of the story of Daniel and the lion's den is actually not Daniel, but it's God, because God has sovereignly protected Daniel in the midst of a hostile people group towards God and his culture. And so we, we have this tendency to view the Old Testament in either fragmented stories that don't make much sense or moralistic stories that are given to us to teach us to try to be better people. You know, I, and I use this example all the time. We, you know, we read the story of Jonah, and when I was a kid, you know, Miss Betty, my third grade Sunday school teacher, God bless her heart, you know, was sitting there, and she's like, you know, and so if you don't listen to mom and dad, a fish might eat you, right? That's the lesson here. It's like, well, no, actually, the story here is that Jonah was incredibly disobedient to God, and in the midst of that disobedience, was thrown off the side of a ship, and then sovereignly preserved and kept alive by God by that fish, so he could then be spit back up on land three days later, and then go to Nineveh like God told him to in the first place. That God lovingly, patiently, even though what Jonah walked through I would imagine was not a whole lot of fun. He was in the belly of a fish. God still preserved his life and kept him safe. And so the hero of that story is God because he kept Jonah safe. Not some moralistic story about if you don't listen, God will punish you by throwing you in the mouth of a fish. Right? The reality is, is he was thrown out the side of the boat in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. He's dead if that fish doesn't swallow him. He's not going to survive out there. And so we're going through the Jesus Storybook Bible to give us this more holistic view 
of how the Old Testament really is this story of creation, fall, redemption, and then glory. That God created everything, including human beings, right, to mirror his image and likeness. And in that mirroring, worship him and make much of him. And that that image was destroyed, as we saw back in Genesis chapter 3 a few weeks ago, through sin and disobedience and the, the desire to be like God, knowing good and evil and deciding for ourselves what we can and cannot do and what God has to say about it is unimportant to us. And then... What we see ultimately is everything after Genesis chapter 3, and even in reality at the end of Genesis chapter 3, is how God is working in and amongst human beings to make them see and realize the value and the treasure that is God and knowing Him. And that God would do, whate would do whatever it would take to rescue human beings and humanity from themselves. Because since Genesis chapter 3, the person that has been robbing you of the most joy is yourself. That the sin you commit, the things you do, right, no matter what family situation you grew up, no matter who you are, that no one robs you of more joy than yourself because you are in charge of the decisions that you make in your life. And that, that joy is being robbed from you because God has given us a design and an intention and a way to live and to transgress from that design is not brave, it's not powerful, it's not autonomous, it's foolish because God knows a thing or two about how human beings should operate. He created us. It would, it would be like if you and I created a, a robot that had artificial intelligence and then that robot turned around to us and said, well, I know about human life more than you. It's like, well, I'm going to turn you off because you're a robot. Right? The reality is, is that's how many of us treat God, though. That God created us. He designed the entire universe and how it works and fits together. How things work, that, how things can go in seasons and work together. And that God looks out over everything that he's done. And human beings, with their stiff necks, look up to him and say, we don't need you. We're, we're not interested in what you have to offer in this situation. And so the reality of much of what we're going to see in the Old Testament from here on out is that kind of attitude, God, we don't need you. And, you know, what's really interesting to me is over the course of the last couple hundred years, really in reality, since the invention of the, the printing press, is human beings as a, as a society globally have made tons of advancements, both in technology and in academia. And, and, and science and research and whatever else. And one of the fascinating things to me, I mean, think about it, right? We discovered uh, penicillin. We've discovered how gravity works and then how we can then subsequently break the laws of gravity. We've figured out, right, how to um, educate people on a mass and global scale by making people literate and creating ways to, you know, Xerox things and disseminate information. And then at this point, the internet exists where... I, you know, to hold, most of you guys probably don't even know what a book is anymore. Everything's on your Kindle or on your phone, right? All these advancements we've made over the last couple hundred years as a society, and yet the surprising thing to me is as the smarter we've gotten as a society in scientific and intellectual thought, as we've moved culturally, especially in America, from a more God-fearing, at least culturally, nation to a more agnostic, atheist-leaning country, one of the fascinating things to me about as that's been happening is that the community that's moving in that direction thinks that now all of a sudden 
they have so much information that they finally crack the puzzle and they know why we don't need God anymore. You know, if you read anything from the, the physicist Stephen Hawking, he says this. He says, God may exist, but science can explain the universe without the need for a creator. Which really is kind of self-defeating because if God may exist, then the problem of not figuring out who that creator is is actually a major problem because he would be the starter of all things. So it's kind of self-defeating. But in and of itself, this is a consistent theme that we're seeing now in culture is we finally figured it out. We figured out everything. There's no need for God. You know, 2,000 years ago, people were, were dumb and ignorant, but now we finally have everything figured out. And I would venture to say that if we follow the news at all, I would submit to you that we haven't figured everything out. As a matter of fact, we're, we're, we're pretty far away from it. But that especially in regards to when it comes to God, there's nothing original in that statement. No, there's, there's, there's nothing original in the statement of, we don't need God, we can figure this out on our own. We, we think it's original. We think that we've advanced as a society and as humans beyond that point. But people have been doing that since the Garden of Eden. Right? In reality, what Adam and Eve were saying is, I don't, we don't need God. Why, why would we need God? We, we, we can figure this out on our own. God, is God even really good? We don't, we don't really need him. And in the story that we're going to look at today, which is the story of the Tower of Babel, which Ginger read for us earlier, is that there's some really cool things about maybe why the universe or specifically the world is the way that it is there. But really, the story of the Tower of Babel is a story of man's opinion of God and God's subsequent response to that poor opinion. Because the people in Babel, here's what they're saying, God, we don't need you. We're on our own. All right, look at the text with me. All right, look at verse 1. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Okay, so this is, this is where we're start, this is our starting point. People have begun to repopulate the world after the flood. Okay, the descendants of Noah are beginning to repopulate Mesopotamia. And these descendants of Noah are maybe one or two, maybe three generations removed from him. So it's not as if they were unaware that a flood to wipe out the human race had just occurred a, a couple hundred years earlier. And this, this happens... And they're sharing a common language, and so they're easily able to work together. They share a culture. They share ideas. They work together. And here you have these people, a couple generations removed from this tragic event that took place. And here is what they decide to do. Look at verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, there's multiple things going on here, and I, I want us to slow down for a second and address each one of them. Okay, so he says, first of all, that the, the people got together and said, well, let's, let's build this tower. And so most likely what they were talking about was a ziggurat. Would you, will you throw that picture up there for me? I want to give you guys a, a quick history lesson. That, uh, these were ancient buildings in Mesopotamia uh, that, they, that they would build. And oftentimes you, they, they would be the center of some sort of city in that region. And there at the top, if you see that little section, that would be a, 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 some sort of like room or, or worship center for whatever god that particular tribe worshipped. And so uh, these... 
buildings were basically built to be kind of like a fort in some ways where they would be able to defend themselves and have a high vantage point to be able to defend themselves from, from other attackers. And so, th- you know, this is probably something about what they're talking about. They're saying, hey, let's, let's build this tower, right? We're going we're gonna to build this, right, so that we can have this monument. And look at what they say they're going to do. They said they're going to build this tower with its top in the heavens. Now, first of all, you guys look at that and, you know, it's 20... 16. So what are we thinking about the height of that building right there? You know, I, I think there's a building in Gainesville that's even higher than that one. And I think like the biggest building in Gainesville is like six stories, right? And so you, you, look, you look at that and you say, well, you know, this isn't a big deal. But, it, but we're talking about roughly 2000 BC. So this is kind of, you know, there weren't major advancements yet in engineering going on then. Okay, and so you have this people and they're like, we're going to build this tower to the heavens. And here's what they're actually communicating by saying that. Okay, no matter what religious background you came from in that time period, most people in that region of the world believed that the heavens were the throne room of their God. That whoever, whatever God they might worship, the throne room was the heavens. It was the skies. That was where, that was where God resided. And so by saying that they're going to do this, here's what they're communicating. Hey, we, we don't need God. We can, get, we can get up into the heavens ourselves. There's no separation between us and him. God thinks he's created some huge, right, chasm between us with his throne room being in heaven and and us being down here on the ground. We'll just build this tower and get up there ourselves. And we'll be able to seat ourselves in the throne room looking out over everything because, hey, we don't need God. we We can work together in such a way that really we can dwell in the same place that God himself dwells. That we can dwell in the throne room of God because we can build this tower. And so, so by definition, what they're stating here by saying this is we don't need God. We can do everything that we need to do on our own. That's, you know, now the author of Genesis doesn't come out and say that, but that is what's being communicated there. There's, there's no need for God. I mean, look at us. Look at us as a people group. We can build this amazing structure. We don't need him. We have, we have no need for him at, at all. And in case you're questioning me on drawing that out at this point, look at the next part. And let us make a name for ourselves. Now here's one of the interesting things about human beings. Because God created us in his image and likeness, you and I, by definition, are supposed to be creators whether it's art, whether it's science, whether it's education, whether it's sports, whether it's literacy, whatever route you want to go, human beings are supposed to be creators, right? They're supposed to be creating content, right? Making the world, right, a better place by doing things, by making things the way that God created. And so by definition— right, your, your trade or whatever you may do in life should be creating value in some way and does create value in some way because you're working. And so by definition that human beings are supposed to be doing this, but the, 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 the linchpin for everything is that in doing that, it's supposed to bring glory and honor to God because human beings were created to reflect him like a mirror. That when, when, when someone paints a beautiful picture, we should look at it and we, and we could see, 
man, that person has an amazing amount of artistic talent and ability. And then we could stand on top of a mountain and look over the landscape of what God has created and say, and yet it pales in comparison to the ability of God to create. We can look at human beings' ability to create the internet and systems and say, wow, that's amazing. We can connect with someone across the globe in under 30 seconds now. How amazing is that? But if you look out over the expanse of the universe, how does that compare? That universes and systems are in perfect order with one another, right, to operate, and especially in our own solar system, that this planet can sustain life. Hate to break it to you, Al Gore, but the internet pales in comparison to that. Right, some of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about because you were too young, but Al Gore years ago claimed to have invented the internet, by the way, okay? Look it up for those of you that were like in fourth grade when that election was happening. But by definition... Right? Human beings are creators, but that creation is supposed to reflect God's design and the fact that he is a creator and wor worthy of our worship and praise. And so by them saying, hey, let's do this, but let's do it for our name's sake, they're spitting in God's face saying, we don't need you. Look at what we can do. We have no need for you any longer. And then this last part directly contradicts what God told Noah when he left the ark. Look at this last part. He said, they say this. Let's make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So their desire is to live in community and in a city with one another. And yet if we look back to Genesis chapter 9 verse 1, what did God tell the descendants of Noah to do? Be God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and what? Multiply and what? Fill the earth. This last statement that they're making here is in direct contradiction to the mandate that they had been given the moment that their father, grandfather, great-grandfather Noah stepped off the ark. That Noah was given the same mandate as Adam and Eve and that human beings, a few generations removed, directly contradict the directive given to them by God. They already don't care. And really, in reality, this whole scenario reeks of, of pride, really, in reality. That, at, at the end of the day, that's what it reeks of. of. The pride of human beings. We don't need God. Let's make a name for ourselves. We don't need to multiply and fill the earth. Let's all hang out in this city. Pride has led these people to independence and disobedience. And, and think about this for a second, okay? Because independence and disobedience are the exact opposite hallmarks of what a follower of God does. The exact opposite of what God asks. And, th and this isn't just a cultural shift in our society that's screaming this, although it is. You know, hey God, we don't need you. You know, we're, we're not building a ziggurat, right? But we're doing it in different arenas, especially in a city like Gainesville with the academic community. Right, that we, we look at God and say, we have no need for you, which by the way, let me take a 30 second aside here, is absolutely hilarious to me because academia would not exist 
today without the Reformation in the church. Okay? When the Reformation happened, the creator of the printing press created the printing press to print what? Bibles. Right? So our, disseminate, our dissemination of other literature and other books, the printing press was only invented because someone said, I want to get the Bible to as many people as possible so that they can read it and be literate. That, that was his goal. Then on top of that, in our country, most academic institutions were started as what? Seminaries. Right? Places where people came to study the word. And they've kind of evolved over time to add tons of other disciplines. And now at this point, right, to eliminate God from them at all. But without the church, right, we wouldn't even be where we're at right now as a society. Right? We want to, so, so many, so many people want to look at the church and say, here's all the things that they've done wrong. Here's everything that's going on. But without the church, we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are as a society. And yet as a society right now, we sit and we say, look, God, we don't need you. What the, what the people are really communicating here, though, and their disobedience and their stiff-necked attitude towards God is two things. That in trying to build this city and insulate themselves from God, what they're looking for more than anything is security. If we all live together under the same language and the same culture and our ability to work together, nothing can stop us. We'll be secure and safe. Okay. I know a ton of you in this room wrestle with that same issue. You wrestle with security. Who, who doesn't, right? You know, so, and, and what this causes in you is, is disobedience because you want to wrestle away with what God may be asking you to do at any given moment for the sake of being safe. And what many of you guys, if you've been Christians for any extensive amount of time, know to be true about following God is he is anything but safe. Right? I remember a couple years ago, my sister was called by God to be a missionary overseas in Kazakhstan. And one of the things that was really fascinating about my family to me is that like, whenever there was like, some sort of like, chaotic moment in my family, it was like, well, let's go to Kevin and let him solve all the problems. You know, it's like... Mom, Dad, Grandma, you have like years and years of life experience on me, and you're sitting the 21-year-old down to, ha to like have an intervention with my sister. Okay, so I, I remember I'm like out of my grandparents, and my sister's not there that weekend, and my grandmother and my mom and my dad sit me down to have like this intervention with me to then, so that they can say, well, you go be the bad guy and tell your sister that we don't want her to go to Kazakhstan because it's dangerous because it's old Soviet country. I'm like, and so here they are, and they're listing all these things. They're like, it's dangerous, and she won't be around for Christmas, and something bad could happen to her, which, by the way, something bad did happen to her. She made the tabloid news over there. If you look it up online, she got arrested, okay? So my sister and I have both been arrested. She's just in a foreign country, right? <laughs> She's so mad at me right now, by the way. I did not ask for permission to share this story, Okay? And so she's, she's in Kazakhstan, right? And, and, and my parents are like, you need to tell her that it's too dangerous for her to go. It's not safe, right? And what's so fascinating if we look at that scenario, right, is my sister was abundantly convinced that God had asked her to do something. And my parents and grandparents who love the Lord were so worried about security and safety that they were willing to ask my sister to disobey God to keep her safe. Now that's a fairly extreme example, but who can't relate with something like that? 
that God may ask you to do something and you're afraid of the consequences so you won't do it. Break up with that guy. Don't hang out with that crowd. Go to this place. Do this thing. God, you're asking me a lot. You're asking me to tear down my, my walls of safety and, and security. I don't know if I can do this. And you end up just like the people of Babel, disobediently staring down God's commands and disobeying them. Now, the other thing that they struggle with here is that in building this tower and making a name for themselves, they're seeking praise, but in the wrong places. And again, who doesn't want to see affirmation and being praised by somebody? Right? And, and this, is the, this is the cultural problem in America right now, especially in, in, in relationships, is that we don't understand that as human beings, we're hardwired to be affirmed, but that affirmation is supposed to come for God, and so we run and scream and look for it somewhere else. And the problem is, is especially amongst you young people in the room, you go and look for that in a spouse. And then what you start doing is, is you start projecting that need to be affirmed in that person. And what's inevitably going to happen is that guy or that girl is going to fail you, and then chaos ensues. Right? I love when I sit down for premarital counseling with a couple, and I'm like, hey, like, how are you guys doing? What's going on? And like, yeah, we never fight. We just complete each other. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> okay. Well, we need to start over right now. <laughs> right now. Because here's the reality. You guys may be a perfect fit at 22, but you are going to drastically change by the time you're 30. Your desires are going to change. The things you love are going to change. Your appearance is certainly going to change. Ask Jackie about mine. It's changed quite a bit over the last eight years. And you look at that and you say, oh, you know, she looks great. He looks great. He's got this great personality. He's got tons of energy. And then eight years in, two kids later and, and a 50-hour-a-week job, I'm like tapping out at 10 o'clock. Like, God, please, can I go to bed, please? Right, my kids are screaming, I don't want to go to bed. And all I want to do is sleep. And Jackie's like, this guy is boring. You guys think I'm joking right now. Ask Jackie what we do. We're like, pass out on the couch after getting the kids to bed, just watching Law & Order SVU reruns over and over again. And you guys are like, your life is terrible. I think it's awesome. Right? SVU is amazing. Right? Right? But you, you, you look for this affirmation and another person, and inevitably, it's going to fail you in the long run. Inevitably, it's going to fail you. And, and what they're doing here, right? Look at Proverbs 29, 25 for me real quick. Right, this is, this is King Solomon talking to his son. He's like, the fear of man, that's another term for codependence or seeking other people's approval. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. There's incredible wisdom in that, right? Whatever psychological term we want to give it, codependency, right? Struggling with needing other people's approval, whatever term we want to do it, the Bible calls it this, fear of man. And these people are driven, right, by the desire to be affirmed by one another. And so they're like, well, let's build this tower and let's do all this stuff together and we'll be safe together and we can just affirm one another and it's going to be awesome all the time and we're going to have this perfect utopian society and life is going to be great in Babel. It's going to be awesome. 
It'll be great. We'll be, we'll be there for one another. And guys, how many marriages start that way? Oh, we're going to be there for one another. We're going to love one another. Everything's going to be great. And then you're both working two jobs, and you've got kids, and life gets rough. And the reality sets in. And what you were looking for an affirmation with one another that was supposed to be directed towards God has now laid a snare because you're miserable with one another. Because you've placed the other person in your life above the cultural mandate of where they're supposed to be. That God has given. God, God gives marriage to us as a gift, but not to replace him but as a gift to be enjoyed so that we might see the reflection of, you know what I love so much is that because Jackie loves God more than me and because she loves the Lord more than me, when I screw up, her world is not shattered. Now, 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 don't, now don't mishear me because when I screw up, she's still emotionally upset and she is hurt and what I have done has caused strife in our relationship and our marriage. But her world is not destroyed because she is rooted in God's love for her. And she knows that, believes that, and understands that. And so what these people struggle with so deeply is a desire for security and a desire for affirmation and praise. And it's all there in God, but they're looking at him screaming, we don't want you. We don't want to have anything to do with you, God. We don't need you. We don't want you around. Get lost. We can do this on our own. And in no place is this more evident than in a city like the one we live in that's filled with academics and progressivism that pushes God to the background and says to us, you don't need him. Right, if I was preaching this sermon in some other part of the state, it might look a little bit differently, but because we're in Gainesville, this is the culture that you and I are in right now. This, these are the things that are being told to us around all the time. That We're hearing these things around us 24-7. And just like the people in this city screaming we don't need God, we scream it today, and yet God responds. Right, look at verse 5 of Genesis chapter 11. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had, had built. Now I, I want to stop there for a second. Does anybody catch the irony in that verse? Right? What, what had the people of Babel said they were going to do beforehand? Build a tower that what? It was in the, in the heavens, in the throne rooms. And then what does the author of Genesis immediately communicate to us? God's like, oh, that's cute. Let me come down and look at it. <laughs> that's really cute. All right, let me come down from the actual place where I'm at. Okay? The actual place where I sit and observe and see what you guys have done. You know, let me, let me, let me look at it. Okay? He says that. He says, let us come down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And look what he says. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. 
and they, all, they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Okay. So God comes down, he sees what's going on, he sees this little tower that they're building and, he, and he's like, okay, this is, this is a problem. Right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to acknowledge this at, as, a, as an issue. Um, he says, you know, says this is bad, and then he, then he intervenes, okay? And, and, and by intervening, he says, I'll, I'm going to confuse their language, and he uses the Hebrew term bala, which is where we get um, the term babble here, right? You ever heard, like, babies do what they babble, right? That's where we get that from, right? Ba, ma, 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 you know, if you guys are around Josiah at all, that's all he does. Right now, it's really exciting with a few real actual English words mixed in there every once in a while. But this is where we get that, that term from. And, it, and, and the word belong means to confuse, to mix, to mingle together. And so God says, hey, this is what we're going to do. Okay, he's talking amongst himself as the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's like, we're going to go down here and we're going to confuse their language. We're going to disrupt some unity. They think they've got it all figured out. They think they've got it all together. Let's just do something real simple. Let's make them unable to communicate with one another. That should solve this problem real quickly. So, you you know, it's kind of like a Mac and a Windows PC trying to talk to each other at this point. And he he comes down and he says, I'm going to confuse, and then I'm going to do exactly what I told you guys to do back in Genesis 9-1. I'm going to disperse you. I'm going to do for you what you were supposed to do. And so he comes down, he confuses, and he disperses them. And, and you know, this is cool. I mean, we, this is where we find out where we get different cultures and different languages from. You know, that, that human beings were dispersed at this point, and then we're able to communicate with one another, and we got different languages and how different people groups kind of came about. Um, but there's a bigger issue at stake here. I mean, I remember when I was in, 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 in Sunday school growing up, and this was the, 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 the moral of this story was, and this is where people from China and Africa and Europe and South America, this is where they all came from. It's like, well. Yes, but then there's like, you know, a couple thousand years of history after that, too, that got us to the point where we're at. There's something much bigger that's being communicated here any, anyway that's, that's way deeper than how do we get different languages in the world, okay? And, and it's, it's the question of, of why does God respond the way that he does to what, to what the people of Babel are doing? You know, it's a, you know, it's a tower, God. You know, were you upset? Were you angry? Was your pride hurt? You know, what, what was going on? Why, why did you decide to come down and do this? Because the people of Babel are obviously guilty of the sin of pride, you know, being independent and disobedient to what God had asked them to do, you know. Like the reality is, is they, they should be walking in humility where they're, they're trusting in God as their creator and their savior and that they would obey him as creator and king. That is the ideal scenario of what they should be doing in this situation. And they should be dispersing and populating the earth the way that God had given them that mandate back in Genesis chapter 9. And so the reality is, is that God, because he is king, has to react in some way, shape, or form. Let's, let's get that out of the way. You know, uh, we... We have a very, very, very safe view of God in 2016. He's the loving, patient, merciful, 
can't wait to hear about your day, always there waiting for you to call, right, creator of the universe. There, there is some truth to that. But he is also the creator of all that is seen and known and subsequently the king of all things, right? Which is why when the Bible describes him, he just, the, the Bible describes God as both a lion and a lamb, meaning that he is tender like a lamb, but he is also roaring like a lion. And what is the lion called? The king of the jungle. That God is in charge. It's not like you and I can sit down and have a philosophical discussion about this. If God really exists, he is by definition in charge and king. It's like, it's like okay, we have decided that we're going to get together and we're going to have a powwow on campus, an open forum where we can discuss whether God is really in charge of everything. You don't, really get, you don't really get to ask that question. It'd be like me walking into a business place, asking for a job, getting hired, and being like, yeah, I don't really think I need to take directions from the CEO any longer. I know he created this business and started it, but I think we should hold an employee forum this afternoon on whether we're going to listen to the boss anymore. And then we can decide and discuss whether he's really in charge and really has authority. And as we're holding that forum, the CEO would walk in and what? fire everyone and hire new people. We don't, we don't get to have those types of discussions philosophically because if God is really creator, he is king. And the Bible has made it abundantly clear that this is the case. And so here's the situation. God looks down at the disobedience of the people of Babel and says, I'm king, I'm going to come down here and do something about it. I'm within my godly prerogatives as king to come down here and take care of this situation because you guys aren't doing what I created you to do consistent theme. We're 11 chapters in and we're seeing it over and over again already in the book of Genesis. But the reality is, is there's also a bigger reason that God does this. Because he's not motivated just by his kingly prerogatives, but he's also motivated by his love for his people. This is one of the great things about, about our God. That he can be both harsh and discipliner and loving and merciful at the same time. Something very, very few of us know anything about. And so he looks out over the situation, and he's not just coming down because he's like, I'm really worried about the engineering of that ziggurat. It might not hold up. He looks down over his people, and I want you to think back to Genesis chapter 3, a few weeks ago when we were talking about that and what, what happened to Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve disobey God and God sends them out of the garden. But he sends them out of the garden, why? Because he loves them, right? Sin, sin has entered into God's world at that point. And the worst thing that could possibly happen to Adam and Eve is that they would spend eternity dealing with that junk, and so God says, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to send you out of the garden. I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to provide for you. But I'm going to send you out because the worst thing that could possibly happen is that you might spend eternity in the state that you are in right now. And so he, he sends them out, not because he hates them, but because he loves them. God's, God, God doesn't end up dispersing the people of Babel and confusing their language because he hates them or he's afraid that he might be overthrown by them. Instead, 
he does this because in reality, it's what's best for them. That putting them back on course for the mandate that he had laid out in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, is the best thing for them. It's what they need more than anything. As the people of... As the people of Babel stare down God and reject him and declare their sovereignty from him, God responds, I love you. I won't let you do that to yourself. You need me even if you don't know it. Even if you're not willing to admit your need for me, you need me. One of my favorite quotes outside of the Bible is, comes in mere Christianity. Some of you guys have been around me enough. You're like, oh my gosh, Kevin, you quote mere Christianity constantly or anything else C.S. Lewis does. Yes, he's my favorite author. Get over it. Right, this is what he says, though, concerning man's need for God in mere Christianity. He said, God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. The people of Babel look at God and they look at themselves and they say, I'm seeking security, happiness, and comfort, but I'm looking for it apart from God. And because God loves them, he saves them from themselves because it is in no other place but him. And the moment that they became prideful and obstinate and came to this realization that they thought they didn't need him anymore, the most loving thing God could do is to correct it and force them to need to rely on him. And so he confuses their language, he separates and disperses them, and subsequently, they must now see that security, peace, and affirmation that they look for can only be found in him, because humans are finite, but he is not. They are created, he is creator. It stems back even to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that the root of sin and the issues that we have as human beings is that we as humans would rather worship the creation instead of the creator who's to ever be praised, amen. Think about the things you love the most in this world. If God is not at the top of that list, running that list, you're worshiping something he created. If it's, a, if it's another person, created. If it's a job, created by man, subsequently by God. If it's sports, created. If it's nature, created. If it's money, created. You name it, 
God made it. And that the reality is, if you try to worship anything else other than him, you will be left wanting. And so God, in his mercy, rescues them from themselves. You will do anything but seek after me, he says, but I need you to know that you need me. And guys, here, like, here's, here's the reality. If the people had Babel, or the people of Babel, excuse me, had been working under proper motives of some way, we, we want to build this tower for God so that, that he knows how much we love him. Right, and he, he could see this. Even, even if that had been their motivation, it still would have been a major issue for them. Because, look at what they said. Let's build this tower to get to heaven so we can get to God. Now, whether it's to, to dethrone him or to get to him, they think on some plane that they are powerful enough to get to God on their own. It's a lie that human beings have been believing for thousands of years. That you are powerful enough and strong enough to get to God on your own. Guys, you're not. You are are not no matter what you could do even working with the best and brightest minds in the world you cannot reach god through your works right think think about how advanced that building would have been in that time period pretty good and that's why i love verse five so much because humans are like, let's do this. We're going to make this amazing tower. We can get to God. It's going to be great. We're, look how awesome we are. Look at us as the human race. Look how we amazing we are. And then God shows up and it says, he comes down. I was like, okay, really? This is it? You have a very small view of God. If that is what it takes to get to him. And the reality is, is that God is so much bigger than that. And here's the good news, right? God looked over the people of Babel and came down to them and saved them from themselves. You know what the sto- this story is? It's a foreshadow to Christ. The reality is, is you and I, in our own sin, rob ourselves of joy constantly while we seek security, pleasure, praise, affirmation from others, and we run to so many different places looking for it. I'm going to run to money, and if I have enough money, I'll be secure. I'm going to run to this relationship because if I'm loved enough by this person, then I'll be secure. I'm going to go to the University of Florida and get three undergraduate degrees, two masters, and then a doctorate. Some of you guys are laughing. You, there's someone in this room, I think, that's doing that right now. And if I have enough education, then I will be fine. I'll be secure. I'll be affirmed by people. People will know how great and how smart I am and how amazing I am. We run to those things and we seek out those things looking for security and affirmation. You will be left wanting if that is the route you take. 
And in the same way that God came down to the people of Babel, he sent his own son 2,000 years ago to rescue us from ourselves. The reality is, is that our sin and disobedience towards God is no different than what the people of Babel were doing. And that the, the way that God designed us to run on him, as C.S. Lewis said, is to be connected to him. And the way that God made a path so that you and I might be reconnected with him is through the person and the work of his only son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus lived a life you and I couldn't live, a life of obedience, a life of finding true joy and satisfaction in his father and in his father alone. That his attention and his heart worshipped his father and his father only. I love when the scenario comes up where when Satan takes him into the desert to tempt him and every time Jesus responds with his love for the father and knowing the deception of worshipping something created. Hey Jesus, don't, you're pretty hungry, don't you just want some food? A man does not live on, on bread alone. It's created. I do need food, but I don't live on that alone. I'm going to live on the word of God. Hey, Jesus, look, look, look out over this kingdom. Look how, look how amazing. I could give all of this to you, which is kind of hilarious because it is already his. I'll give all this to you. I'm going to worship the Lord your God only. That's it. That's what, that's what, that's what my father's word to, to his people says. I'm going to follow that. And so Jesus shows us what a life of affirmation and obedience and joy truly looks like. And then he goes to the cross and he takes upon himself your sin, disobedience, and crimes and pays the penalty for them. He's buried to prove that he's dead and then three days later, he raises from the dead to prove that sin and death have no control on it, over him and that God for once and for all has put to death, death. That the power that Satan and this world have over us has none any longer because God has come to our side and done what he's been doing from the outset, which is rescuing his people. The same way he came to Babel. The same way he came to Noah. The same way we're going to see him come to David, to Daniel, to Joshua. Over and over again, guys, the hero of the story is God. And it finds its climax in Jesus. We're going to take communion in a second because that's what we do here every Sunday. One, because we believe it's biblical, but two, because I believe and, and your other pastors at this church believe that taking communion is an opportunity for you and I to reflect on the magnitude of what God has done for us. So I'm going to ask that you would look at this and you would recognize the weight of God constantly showing us that he's going to show up in the midst of our, of our wreck. That's what he's in the business of doing. And it finds no greater picture than in the picture of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross for your sins and for mine. 
And that as you take communion this morning, you might confess your sins, but then openly and joyfully accept God's forgiveness to you in Jesus because that is what is being extended to you. And that you would worship him thankfully because he's so worthy of it. He's so much worth, he's more worthy than anything you could imagine. That you might reflect, respond, and worship him in this time. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in a, in a story like that of some people a couple thousand years ago building a tower in a city, the blueprint for salvation is still laid out before us. That as those people sought security and peace and joy, they were actually in reality robbing themselves of it. The very same thing I do each and every day. The same thing that each of us does every single day. And yet in your prerogatives as king, you also choose to show love and mercy towards us. The same way your discipline of the people in Babel ultimately led to, to joy so they might know you, the same is said of us if we simply confess our sins, repent, and trust in Jesus for forgiveness. God, I pray that we might know that and that we would worship you all of our days because there is nothing and none that compares to you. God, thank you for your son, and I ask this in his name.